morning, everybody. How's everybody doing today? Fabulous. Good. Fabulous. Wow. <clears throat> clapping? Who's Impressive. clapping over there? Thank you for that. Uh, well, hey, you may uh, already recognize that this morning is a little bit different. We have no musicians up here other than Russ and I. <laughs> really fantastic musicians. I'm, I'm a killer on the shaker. Um, so this morning's going to be different. We are actually not having worship through music. We're going to be speaking this morning. We're going to be doing a, what we call a tag team message, which Russ and I have never spoke together. Uh, it's done commonly here at New Community. We've had other people team teach, uh, but we've never done it together. So today, my wildest dreams are coming true because I get a team teach with a good friend of mine. Um, so this morning, we're going we're gonna to be tackling a subject that's going to be more interactive by nature. We're going to be in some small groups throughout uh, some of the morning. And let me say this. If this morning's going to be good, we've got to keep it light a little mm -hmm. bit, okay? So feel free to laugh, feel free to have fun, uh, but we're going to hit some, um, some truth out of the scripture here. Yeah, feel free to laugh, have fun, feel free to interrupt us, feel free to have dialogue back and forth. We want this to be uh, a time where we're wrestling together with what the scriptures say, and uh, we're going to actually, we're still staying in Matthew, we're taking a whole year to go through it, and as you know, we're not going through it uh, in a linear fashion, we're going through it. Uh, based on certain themes, and the theme that we're wrestling with right now is relationships. So we've been talking for the last couple weeks on relationships, and actually this week uh, we are framing the whole discussion around singleness and marriage, and then that space between that nobody really knows what to call. Um, so we're going to talk about those three things this morning, uh, singleness, marriage, and then the space between. Let us be honest from the beginning, we're going to shortchange everybody in this one. There is <laughs> it's always good to start that way. Yeah. Get it out on the table. Uh, there is no way we're going to be able to cover the depth of the married life, the depth of the singled life in totality this morning. We just can't do it. We're going to speak for a full hour and a half. Again, it will be interactive, but even in that, there's no way to cover it. And here, it's actually a little bit by design. Matthew doesn't spend a whole lot of time in his gospel speaking to these issues. He talks about divorce, he talks about marriage, he talks about singleness, but not at great depth, and there's not much space given to it. And so we felt like to be true to the scripture, to be true to Matthew as we're studying Matthew throughout this year, we probably shouldn't spend six to eight weeks on marriage, six to eight weeks on the single life. So that's just the reality of this morning. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't think these things are critically important. We do but we wanted uh, to be true to the scripture this morning. As Kevin already said, we're not going to get to everything today. You're not going to be able to write down all the notes just on marriage and go, this is a complete exhaustive discussion on marriage and everything's finalized in this. Um, the reality is, no matter what subject we talk about from up front, no matter how many weeks we would give to it, it's impossible for Sunday mornings to be the be-all, end-all, Right? That's why we talk all the time about group life. Small groups is where it's at. Small groups is actually where we flesh out everything that we talk about on Sundays. It's where we bring the theoretical to the practical. It's where we bring life application home and we actually begin to live out these things. So I'd encourage you again, if you're not in group life, we talk about it a lot. Uh, we're going to keep talking about it. You've got to engage in community to actually get out of new community, what you uh, hope to get. This morning, we are going to start with uh, marriage, not because uh, it has a higher calling or anything, but simply because when in our text, Jesus starts 
with marriage. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to Matthew 19. And while you're turning there, uh, we are going to be getting in groups here in just a moment. I'm going to give you some instructions. This morning, we're going to try to target groups of about three or four. So if you're kind of sitting with several friends, be in a group of three or four. If you're a group of two, that's fine. Uh, but by and large, if you can connect and interact with a few more people, uh, I think it will create better dialogue for all of us as a community. So here's what we want you to do. Um, find your group of three or four. We're going to give you about 30 seconds to do it. And we're going to ask you to start by just simply introducing yourself. If the people you're sitting with, you don't know them, uh, this is a great chance to do that. So very simply, I'd gather three or four around me. I'd say, hey, my name's Russ. I already know these guys' names. But you get the idea. We share with one another really quick. 30 seconds, go. All right, hopefully you've had a chance to uh, connect with a few people around you. Hopefully you've had a chance to just kind of share your first name, maybe a little bit something about yourself. We're going to give you something to discuss here in just a moment. This is what I want you to discuss. I'm sure many of you have heard of top ten lists, right? David Letterman is famous for creating this top ten lists, and uh, they can at times be quite humorous. We're going to ask you this morning to come up with the top nine benefits of marriage. The top nine benefits of marriage. I mean, we're kind of just making the assumption that some of you already have one particular benefit in mind, all right? So instead of a top ten list, we've already gone down to nine, okay? So top nine list, we'll give you a couple minutes to discuss it. Go. Top nine benefits of marriage. All right? Talk to me. What are the uh, top nine benefits of marriage? All right, intimacy. What else? Children. Children. Very good. Friendship. Friendship. Good. What else? Other benefits of marriage? Cleaning, Cleaning partner. partner. Smart. <laughs> well done. Others. I'm going to rebuke you. Okay, okay. So somebody tell to push and challenge? Yeah. yeah, tell you what you need to hear. Good. What else? Encouragement. Encouragement. Never being alone. Taxes. 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 Right. Yeah. Yeah. Purely financial. <laughs> what was that? What was one over here? Responsibility. An emergency contact, did someone say? <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's a really good that one. Is, yeah. Solid answer. Love it. Because sometimes mom just isn't available, <laughs> right. so then you have the spouse. <laughs> it's good. Yeah, all of, these, all of these comments, all of these ideas, these are definitely benefits of marriage. There are, I, you could come up with a thousand different benefits of marriage. Your comments are the outworking of Jesus' teaching on marriage throughout the Gospels. These benefits are really the positive and healthy expressions of the covenant of marriage. So you hopefully have turned to Matthew 19. If not, turn there now. And uh, as we've done a couple weeks in the past during this series, uh, we're reading in the Gospels. And so what we're going to ask you to do, because this is the very words of Jesus, we're going to ask you to stand as we read this together. So I'll read. You can kind of just follow along in your text or on the screen. We're reading Matthew 19, verse 1 through 6. Says this. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judah beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, 
Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You may be seated. Now, if your Bible is at all like my Bible, uh, we've got these cool little headings at the top that begin to give us some context into which we are speaking. And so if you read this, uh, this is a teaching on divorce, according to my Bible. It might strike you as odd. You might think that we're idiots to talk about marriage out of a passage on divorce. But we actually think this is the most logical place in the Gospel of Matthew, to really begin to address this concept, because Jesus really strikes a chord with the people he's speaking to. Because they, the Pharisees and some religious leaders, come to him and say, we need some answers about divorce, remarriage, about the sanctity of marriage, like, speak into this for us. And they ask him to give them a civil answer. I mean, they're asking a question that's civil in nature, but Jesus doesn't give a civil-related answer. Instead, Jesus tries to get at the question that's behind the question. He tries to get at the answer that's behind the answer. What Jesus is doing is he's recognizing that marriage is first and foremost a heavenly union before it is ever a civil union. The unfortunate reality in this is that our culture, and even our Christian culture, has too often seen marriage through the lens of the civil and not through the covenant. Through the lens of the law that governs the land and not through the reality of the heavenly covenant that we make before God in that marriage ceremony. I remember when I was 19, I had the opportunity to go to a wedding with my family. And we, uh, the, the wedding, and I, I'm, I kid you not on this, from processional all the way to recessional, people walking up the aisle, people walking down the aisle at the end, was no longer than five minutes total. The, the main element of their uh, marriage ceremony was the bride and the groom coming together and signing the marriage certificate. That was what was on stage. It was right there. There was a, a, a pastor or a judge, I'm not sure exactly, overseeing this. And the two parties came together, the bride and the groom, and they signed the marriage document right there. And, and that really was the entire meat of the ceremony. I remember as a 19-year-old leaving that and thinking, Wow, is that what marriage is? Is marriage simply just a, a, a binding certificate that a judge can oversee? Is, is that the extent of what I have to look forward to? What's the message sent in that ceremony, in that situation? You see, God never intended marriage to become simply a civil institution. It was created to be a covenant, a binding vow with divine implications. And when we civilize our marriages, we're extracting its divine importance. We take what was first considered to be of the utmost importance and make it a commonplace next step in our relationship. Here's the, the reality is, is this whole thing boils down to the idea of weightiness. What do we give weight? If we make it just a civil thing, if our marriages are just civil in nature, then we lose the weight behind the very vows that we may speak. When we make it just a slip of paper, we forget that it's actually a commitment before our Lord and Savior. 
marriage is and needs to be seen as the most weighty of human relationships. It's not just something that happens between two people under the control of the state or a judge. It's something that happens by and through the Holy Spirit in the way of grace and mercy of Jesus Christ under the sovereignty of God the Father. It's a divine miracle that unites two people into one. So when Jesus talks in this passage, he doesn't talk about the civil side of things. He talks about words like covenant, unity, you see in the text, holding fast, joining together, a sense of being one flesh. Because what Jesus is speaking to is the unity. He's speaking to the commitment. He's speaking to the joining of two lives. What's interesting in the text is that Jesus starts off by saying, going back to creation and saying that Adam and Eve were created, male and female were created. And then he uses a couple terms that I think give some real context to what we're discussing. The first word he uses is the word holding fast. Some versions would have the word cleave, maybe in your translation. The idea behind cleaving, it says that the husband's to leave and cleave to his wife or to hold fast to his wife. The very understanding of it means to cling to or to keep close. The root word that's used there is the word for glue. It means kind of like Two objects, gorilla glued together, right? It's, it's people who have moved toward one another and that there's this clinging, this, this joining that happens. He goes a little further in verse 6 to talk about and says that what God has joined together, or a better translation perhaps would be what God has yoked together, man is not to separate. Now when we think of the word yoked together, we probably picture the idea of work. You have two animals yoked together, working, going the same direction, doing the same thing with the same purpose. See, Jesus didn't use that he would link us together. He didn't use that terminology. He didn't use the terminology of that we would be domesticated together. He doesn't use the terminology that we would be bedded together. He uses the terminology that we would be yoked together. It's the picture of work. What's interesting is Yoking together carries this idea of assisting one another in the affairs of life. It's working together to raise children. It's working together for the sake of mission, for the impact of community, for the work of God. And I think this shows up in our marriages in the way we serve one another. If we're yoked together, if we truly want to live out what it means to be yoked together... It's when we serve one another. When we're glued together in such a way that our marriage is not about what I get out of it, but rather what I put into it. Too many relationships in life are simply based on what I get out. Can I get out more independence? Can I get out more pleasure? Can I get out, you could list any number of outcomes, but generally when that's the focus, we come at it from a selfish posture. And any time you enter into a relationship or enter into a marriage with a selfish posture, or one in which you're not intent on serving the other, we always show up disappointed. In fact, Gandhi once said it this way, the best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in the service of others. Yeah. Serving is that key. And I would say the foundation of serving is actually sacrifice. I believe to truly serve someone, 
sacrifice needs to be there. Sacrifice needs to be involved at some level. Jesus in Matthew 20 says this, But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, as even the Son of Man came not to serve, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. When we hear these words, when we internalize these words, it's evident that the bar has been set incredibly high. Christ modeled for us the place of the servant in the upper room as he washed the disciples' feet. He models for us the place of the sacrificer as he hangs on the cross for us. This is what we are called into in our marriage relationships. This kind of sacrifice, this kind of service. Sacrifice is to set the foundation from which we are to build our marriages. Putting aside our agendas, putting aside our selfish desires for what is best for the other person. We sacrifice for the good of the other. We sacrifice for the good of the relationship. Ralph Waldo Emerson says this, self-sacrifice is the real miracle out of which all the reported miracles grow. Isn't that beautiful? Think about that in the context of marriage. That out of the self-sacrifice in our marriages, all of the beauty springs forth. All of the good stuff comes out of the self-sacrifice within our marriage relationships. Beauty, love, depth, Redemption, all the things that set apart good marriages come out of this idea of self-sacrifice. Serving is the backdrop for marriage. It's the lifeblood. If we're unwilling to serve, to give of ourselves sacrificially, then our marriages will begin to suffer. Our marriages will ultimately fail. So Jesus in the text talks about this idea of your yoke together. You serve one another. You sacrifice for one another. But then he also moves into this other section that's pretty clear throughout this text where he discusses the idea of one flesh. One flesh is actually one of the most common ways in which Jesus refers to marriage. Dale Bruner said it this way, The joining of a man and woman is so profound that the joining creates a third reality in the world, a one flesh marriage. So we remain whole individuals when we enter into marriage, but some mysterious, unique thing happens where at the end of it, as we join together, there's this mysterious third. Jesus describes it in the text by saying that you're no longer two. It means you're no longer two isolated people. You're no longer totally independent. That what springs out of a one flesh union is an interdependence that's rich. There's this idea of one fleshness. This one fleshness means that two very different lives intersect in such a way that they seek unity, that they seek coordination and togetherness together. It's really the idea of a reworked identity. And it truly is one of the greatest mysteries of marriage, this one flesh that Russ speaks about. It's mysterious because it insinuates that in becoming one flesh, our identities are actually reworked. In marriage, and I'll use my marriage as an example, we are no longer Kevin and Grace, completely independent of each other, but we actually become interdependent. My identity changes as now I take on 
this partner in my life. She becomes part of me. She becomes part of my life. She becomes part of my story. And in the same way, I become part of her, part of her life, part of her story. Together, we live and we further create our identity as one flesh. It's truly a sobering reality to think of it that way. Now, hear me say this. This new identity, this reworked identity, it's not a better identity. It's just a different identity. It's not more holy or more profound than the single or original identity that we are given under the grace of Christ. It's just a new identity. In marriage, our identities as autonomous and independent and self-sufficient people are molded and united to join a, u- a new identity. I think the best way to think about this is in, is in the framework of a third identity beginning to be established. No longer two independent people, but a third identity starting. Now think about it this way. How many people know who Brangelina is? Four people, great. Okay, so <laughs> No, more people know who Brangelina is. Who is it? Brad and Angelina. Yeah, exactly. So there's their third identity right there. How about Tomcat? Anybody know who Tomcat is? Nobody? Just me again? Tom Cruise and Katie Holmes? So think about it in this way. Grace and I's third identity is Keves. <laughs> it's a pretty good one, right? Kevin and Grace, Keves. Or my favorite is Shus, Shannon and Russ. Their third identity right there. <laughs> Now, obviously, I I joke about this, and we use this kind of Hollywood interpretation to to make a joke, but in a sense, it's kind of true. In and through the marriage covenant, a third identity is created, an identity of interdependence, an identity of unity between two people. This uh, third reality, a reworked identity, in my opinion, changes everything, because if we bring it down to the ground level, what begins to happen is that there's an understanding that my accomplishments in life aren't my accomplishments. They're our accomplishments. So my accomplishments become Shannon's accomplishments, and her accomplishments become mine. Her hopes become my hopes. I inherit them. I desire them. My dreams become her dreams. The text goes as far as to say, by Paul in the New Testament, in a unique way, that you're so joined together that my body is actually Shannon's body, and Shannon's body is actually mine. That there's this understanding that we're so together in relationship that this is a new reworked identity. Now, I find that it fleshes itself out in my life every time I go away. So if I go out on a trip, if I'm at some other uh, place or some other location, what happens sometimes is I will experience something that I just am enamored with. Like I see this vista and I go, wow, this is amazing. But I always have this little clause at the end of all of my statements. This would be so much better if Shannon was right here to experience it with me, to see it with me. Same thing's true if I'm on a trip and I go and we're all heading out for the night and we're going to get something to drink or something to eat. And let's say I grab an ice cream cone And I sit there with the ice cream cone and I go, man, this tastes good, but it would taste so much better if I could share it with Shannon. It would taste even better if my kids could slobber on it. Like, if, if together we share something, right, it just brings a layer of richness. And what's interesting is when I experience those things, it reminds me again and again that I've so reworked my identity that when I'm apart 
from my wife, when I'm apart from my soulmate, my other half, this joint union, this third identity is lost. But that when we're together, there's this sense that we are one flesh. So here's where it gets real this morning. For each of these life stages, marriage, singleness, and, and that space between, we're going to offer a couple of admonishments. Now these admonishments come not from a place of us speaking down to people, but this is stuff that Russ and I struggle with, stuff that we said, as a community, we need to hear this truth. We need to be maybe rebuked at some level. And so here are a couple of admonishments for our married couples. I don't think that we serve one another all that well. I think that we're selfish. I think we're lazy. I think we're prideful. I think we're sinful. And I see that in marriages. I see that in my marriages. I, in my marriage, I see that in our marriages. And unfortunately, it seems like sometimes the marriage relationship is the one that suffers from our sinfulness the most. We serve for and care for others all day long, and then we come home and we're lazy. We neglect to serve our spouse. We become short-tempered. We're selfish with our time, with our energy. Grace and I talk about this often. It's, it's as if we serve our friends so well, our coworkers so well, our small group. We serve all these people. We go to be hospitable, and we, and we want to make sure that we're kind and generous to all these people. But then at the end of the day, we don't serve each other all that well. We're short-tempered. We're selfish. We're prideful. This is a question that we often ask ourselves to, to, that can be pretty self-revealing is, would I be treating Grace this way if Grace was my boss? Would she treat me this way if she was my boss? Or if I had an interview and I went to my potential employer's house and I sat in their living room, would I be as lazy as I am right now? Or would I be the first one up from the dinner table to help clear? The first one to help step in and do the dishes? As Christians, I think we are guilty of allowing the security of our covenantal relationships, our covenantal marriages to breed personal laziness and selfishness. We feel as though we've locked up this idea of marriage. And because we've locked it up, because we're secured for life, we no longer have to serve the other, maybe in the way that we served them when we were pursuing them. We no longer have to give self-sacrificially because we're married. The deal is done. So, let's take some, uh, a moment in groups right now. And here's what I want you guys to toss around. Back in those same groups is how are we doing this? When you think about the church, the, and we'll just keep it kind of the, the local American church, how are married couples serving one another? On a scale of 1 to 10, come up with a number. So is it a, is it a 2, is it a 6, a 9, whatever you think it is, but you have to justify that number. So don't just say 5 and then kind of rest there. And 5 is a ridiculous number anyways. Yeah. You, you have no to five. choose one or the other. You can't just say we're, we're totally neutral. You, so pick a number, and then as a group, come up with a reason why do you think it's that number. And uh, we'll bring you back here in, in a minute or two, and we'll hear from that. So get in your groups and discuss that question. If you didn't completely catch the, the whole nuance of the question, here's what you're doing. Scale of 1 to 10, as the church on the national level, how well are we serving our spouse? Scale of 1 to 10, and then why would you give it that? So like if you gave it a 9, 
man, we bend over backwards for each other. We serve each other so well. I just see it reflected in, in my home, in my community, in this church. You get the idea, right? Or if it's a two, here's why, because I think we just stink. Got it? Go. All right? Let's, uh, let's get some feedback. Scale of 1 to 10, how well do you think on the national whole, we as the church are doing at serving our spouses? Scale of 1 to 10, and why? Three. Because the divorce rate in the Christian church is as high or higher than the divorce rate in our church. Okay. And that's not a sign of service. Yes, for sure. Okay. A three because of the divorce rate being equal to that outside of the church, and that could be an indicator of the lack of service. I saw the number four over here. What are some other numbers you might give and why? Yeah. Yeah, so if you didn't hear that, as a society, we are selfish. We ourselves as individuals tend to be selfish. And it's hard to, one, break out of that. And if we're serving each other, most of that service is probably out of a sense of duty rather than out of delight. And so scoring it as a, a three in that regard. I mean, we could probably go around and list all kinds of numbers and reasons why. But let me ask you a couple questions. It's safe when we talk about it in terms of, oh, churches out there churches down the street, churches around the world. But if we had to answer the question, how well are people that are married in this community serving one another? You don't have to answer it out loud, but imagine in your mind, what what would we score it? Would it equally get a three? Would we say that there's this reflection that maybe we're just not serving well? Let me scale it even closer to home. If you're married... How would you score yourself? If you're married, how would you score yourself in the way that you serve your spouse? Let me take it even a step further. Would you be so bold as on the drive home to ask, how would you score me? You put the ball in the other person's court and ask, how would you score me? Which I was so bold last night. (laughs) (laughs) Could be a dangerous move. So last night, my wife and I had a, an opportunity to go out on a date, and <clears throat> as we were in the car, just kind of out of nowhere, I said, hey, Grace, how would you serve me on the way that I have been, or sorry, how would score. you score me? <laughs> I said, how would you serve me? Uh, no, I said, how would you score me on the way that I have been serving, on the way that I have been self-sacrificial? And she scored me as a nine. How about that? Wow. Huh? <laughs> Now, partly, thank you, (laughs) partly because she is gracious, because she knows that I am feeble at best, and I am a fragile man. I think she gave me a high score. Um, But but that's where she scored me, and as I have been reflecting on this over the past week, as both Russ and I have kind of taken this challenge and said, how would we score ourselves, I came up with the number six, and here's why I came up with six. Because I feel like as a, as a father, I do a pretty good job of serving my family. I try to be really present. I try to come home and immediately get into the, the rhythm of the life that is at my home. I try to play with the kids. I help with dinner. I don't feel like I'm uh, a, a father that sits on the couch and allows Grace to manage the kids, but that I'm pretty present, and I try to make that a priority always room to grow, and I know that, that I have not reached some pinnacle in that at all, but there's always room to strive for. But I feel like sometimes, after serving the family, serving my kids so well, I neglect to serve my wife. 
And I would say maybe this is true for our marriage in general. It, it goes both ways. If you have little kids, you know what I'm talking about, but the pure exhaustion that settles in once you get your kids to sleep is staggering. And so when it's all said and done, when we've bathed our kids and we've got them sleeping and we've got them the second cup of water and all that stuff that happens, <laughs> and you do, you, you get the laundry taken care of and the kitchen is finally cleaned and you sit down on the couch, I often feel like I don't have much margin left for grace. I often feel like I just don't have much left to give you. And I think she feels the same way. So I score myself a six, even though I serve my family well, I'm not sure that I'm being incredibly sacrificial to serve my wife in, in pure exhaustion, in, in kind of the crunch time of young family where you say, I have to go above and beyond and really muster strength that I may not have right now to really care for my wife. I think this is an incredibly common thing in the church, in Christian marriages. We do a good job of raising our kids, but in the midst of raising our kids, oftentimes we lose our spouse. This is why the divorce rate jumps once kids leave the home. You've done a great job of raising the family. You've been involved parents, but all along the way, there's been this chasm that's growing because you've been unwilling to serve and sacrifice for one another. Maybe it's not kids. Maybe it's a job for you. Maybe you're trying to climb the corporate ladder for good reasons. You want to secure your future financially. You, you want to reach the, the, the next level of pay grade so that it takes a little bit of the pressure off. Those things are okay things, I think, but sometimes we lose it. We lose our spouse in the midst of that. Or, or maybe in the context of serving the nonprofit that you work for. You're a youth leader. You work at a church. You spend all your time serving people, working for the ministry, doing mission. And when you come home, you forget that the person you were to love the most, the person you were to serve the most, is sitting right next to you. I think we, when we do that, we end up not serving one another physically emotionally, spiritually, even sexually. We just kind of pass it off, and what ends up happening is we begin to have a life that's full of just transactions rather than this transformational relationship. I also think that uh, when it comes to moving on to this next idea, that not only is it an issue of service, but it could be an issue of reworked identity. What I mean by that is um, we strive to keep our own independence. We strive to keep our own identity. And in the, in the midst of doing that, we sometimes treat marriage like it's an add-on to a home. I get to keep my home, and then I added on a new feature. So my neighbors think it's cooler, you know. And we, I've got more social clout. I've got a, a greater house that maybe has some new special features in it. I, it increases my property value. I mean... Obviously, these are good things, right? And yet, I think that sometimes we just go, the only reason I'm doing it this way is because I don't have to change any of me. And part of one flesh, part of this joint life together is to really rework identity in such a way that we become a part of the other. Here's what we need to remember in all this. The point is not how much have we served our spouse this week. The point isn't, do I now like the opera that I'm married, or do I now follow sports because I've reworked my identity in a similar way to my spouse. As with most teaching in Matthew, it's about the heart. Have we in our marriage relationships done the hard work of heart transformation? Or have we simply focused on changing our actions? But if we focus just on that, the heart adjustment will never happen. 
But if we focus on the internals, then the actions will follow. We'll see depth, we'll see joy, we'll see beauty in our marriages. Marriage can't just be going through the motions. It has to be an ever-growing process of becoming more holy for the sake of the other. Now, according to the text, I think that these two points are clear. This idea of serving, this idea of reworked identity. However, there's a lot more advice that I think can be spoken. There's more to marriage than just these two things. And so we actually want to take a moment this morning. We want to open it up to the community to speak in to the talk, the sermon this morning. So here's what we're looking for. We're looking for a single person, somebody that is not married, preferably somebody that's not even in a dating relationship or engagement right now, to speak truth to married couples. Because we really value that. I've seen this play out in my life. I've seen this play out in our small group, that we have both married couples and single people in our group. And oftentimes, the single people speak some of the most profound truth into the marriage context. And so, uh, Rochelle has the mic right here. If you are bold enough... Yeah, we would love for one or two single people to speak truth into the married life. Dump your wisdom on us. Let's go. Um, well, my name is Cynthia. And, um, well, my parents, uh, when I was 14, they wanted to get a divorce because of pride. And um, I just want to say to those that, um, that want to have kids and stuff or already have kids, um, to remember that, I guess, like, with my parents, they um, they said a lot of bad things to each other, and um, I guess, like, that has to do a lot with their pride, and um, just be careful with what you say to each other, and mm-hmm. that's what we were talking about, encouragement and service. Um, my parents um, got saved from God and learned what true love really is, and so growing up, it just taught me to learn more and more about love, and um, I'm not in a relationship. I was once before, but um, I think God has different plans for me right now to keep learning more about true love. So I don't know, just to watch out with your pride and the things that you say to each other and um, be more of encouragement and to serve one another. That's great. Great advice. I love the idea of guarding words. Yeah. Rochelle, we have one more right here, and we'll, we'll end on. So I am in a relationship, but there's something that is important that I feel like I should say. Um, I think that one of the biggest dangers is to try and find your wholeness in who you're with. Mm. And I think that causes a lot of fights. You know, I'm incomplete right now. Why won't you support me? And one thing that I'm really growing in right now is you have to find that wholeness in God alone. And that will strengthen your togetherness when you realize that your security, your wholeness as an individual cannot and will never be able to come from another person no matter how head over heels in love you are and that's what I have found because it almost completely destroyed my relationship because I sought that out in him and it tore him apart and I've realized that when you are whole independent of one another you are whole together preach it that's great that is good (laughs) man you actually, like, obliterated half the yeah. rest of our talk. Yeah. Singles. <laughs> Stealing a little bit of thunder up here Jeez. this morning. No, that's, that's fantastic, and, and we'll come back to that. So that's great. Thank you. Thank you uh, for standing and being bold and offering that. We've got one more. Yeah, no, we'll take one more. Good. 
Awesome. Thanks. Um, those of you who know my, my testimony and like my family history, um, my parents went through a really, really difficult time in their marriage when I was growing up. And I think that one thing that they do now is that, um, let me breathe a second, I'm kind of nervous, um, is because they have sustained their marriage and pushed through those things, they kind of think they can have a pass from serving one another. And it's not out of um, the, I heard somebody say the inspiration, but it's out of the duty, this is what marriage does, so I'm going to. So just because you go through something and come out the other side doesn't give you a pass through the rest of your marriage. Great. Thanks, Dale. We're, uh, we're going to actually shift from married discussion now to this idea of singleness. Yeah. Now, let us be really honest with this and say that there's tension in two bearded, balded guys up here mm-hmm. speaking about singleness, <laughs> mainly because we are both married people. And so, uh, now, obviously, we have both been single at points in our lives. However, there is tension, and we recognize that. So I hope that this doesn't come as insensitive that we're about to speak on a life stage that we don't have. We aren't actively living. Um, However, insensitivity, I did call a good friend of mine in Seattle who is single and is an incredibly solid dude. And um, I vetted this material through him. And I said, hey, I'm going to walk you through my outline. I want you to to tell me if this is insensitive. Tell me if I am off base. Tell me if what I'm going to say isn't appropriate, and, and he seemed to say this is, this is all good stuff and stuff as a single person I would want to hear and I believe to be true. So we're going to jump back into Matthew 19. If you have your Bible, you can stand with us as we again hear the words of Jesus. Giving you a little context, the uh, disciples, just after hearing Jesus' response about marriage and the response that there's this one flesh idea that you stick out you stick through and you're in a marriage, the disciples say to him in verse 10, if, if such is the case of a man with his wife, is it better not to marry? But he said to them, not everyone can receive this same, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. You may be seated. Nothing like a verse about eunuchs this morning, huh? <laughs> hey, if you don't know what a eunuch is, you can find uh, Dale, who just shared in the back. He can get you on Wikipedia and uh, give you a little, a little more context, their diagrams and charts and so <laughs> forth. Um, but in all seriousness this morning, I think it's, it's maybe easy uh, or, or a little easier to understand Matthew by reading Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, where Paul is contextually speaking to the question of whether it's good for all people to marry. And uh, when we stand, we stand because we read the Gospels, they're Jesus' words, so as we read out of uh, 1 Corinthians, you, you may stay seated. But this is what Paul says. I think that in view of present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. And I'm going to jump down here just uh, for, for time reasons this morning. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. 
and the unmarried or betrothed man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. So it's, you could actually read Paul right here and seem that there, see that there's almost an apparent bias toward the single life. I mean, he's almost elevated the single life above the married life in this scripture. If that's the case, if there's this elevated sense of signalness above marriage, my question is, then why the bad rap sometimes in the church for singles? I don't, I don't know if you get the impression around the church worldwide, but there seems to be a, uh, a bad rap for singles. What I mean is uh, if, if you think of it in terms of basketball, you have your like varsity team, your JV team, your C team. It seems as if singles are the C team. If you're dating, you've kind of moved up to JV. You're not ready for the big leagues yet. I mean, you're not, you're not married, but you're like on your way toward that. Or if you don't think of it in terms of that, it seems that people often look at singles and think that they are simply viewed as candidates for dating or marriage, right? So there's this sense of us like always going, oh, we're married. We like being married. You should like that too. So let's try to figure out who you should be married to, right? And so here's what we want you to do. We want you to get into groups, and I want you to answer this question. Why do people get the impression, either from the church or from society or, or from each other, that single is not complete? You just heard that singleness is complete. So why is it that the impression is given by society, by the church, by others, that single is not complete? Okay. Discuss it. We want to get some feedback on why that perception might be present. We'll give you about two minutes. All right? Why, uh, why the bad rap? Why the bad rap or the perceived uh, impression uh, regarding singles? Talk to us. Okay, because culturally people think you're lonely. I think media right. plays right into that. I mean, you always see these like healthy, self-actualized couples, and then you see this lonely single who's always like pursuing relationships and they're always broken and they keep pursuing and yeah there's that loneliness idea yeah okay because <laughs> lonely people will try to convince you you're lonely good <laughs> the natural growth church model. growth <laughs> through childbirth right That's tried and true baby classic classic yeah, there's a perception that maybe something's wrong with you, You're, you haven't been married yet, and uh-oh, so you know. And I actually think a lot of that comes out of this idea, oftentimes you hear it's not good for man to be alone, Genesis. And I think we read and we study this scripture with some apparent biases, thinking that because Eve was made to be with Adam, that that was the end-all, be-all of what God created in that moment, that that was the end that God had in mind. But if you actually read this exegetically, if you study this it's pretty clear that God's desire was for human relationship, not just for marriage. Now, certainly marriage is a form of human relationship, but it is not the only form or the greatest form of human relationship. Good. One, we'll take one more. So harder equals good, maybe. And so because we're married and sometimes it, it's harder work and it's something you have to work through, you're single, it's easy, right? I mean, we, we sometimes give that impression or we might get that understanding. I think 
we even in Christian circles set it up really poorly for people who are single. If you go into a Christian bookstore, this is generally how it works when you go from aisle to aisle. There's about a million and one books on marriage and love and relationships, right? You go down like a little aisle and there's like a million and one books on how to parent and have a family and raise kids. You go down one more shelf and there's like 12 books, right? And it's like on singleness or being single again, divorce or uh, the issue of, of being a widow. And then, and then like you go to the next section hoping you're going to find a great book on the theology of singleness and you find like a hundred books on how to find the right one in life, right? <laughs> and we just set the whole thing up to, to skew toward marriage, even in Christian circles. Now here's the truth, and it was already spoken eloquently this morning. But the reason for singleness is that you are already complete. In Christ, we are already complete. I am not any more complete because of my marriage with grace. Russ is not any more complete because of his covenant made with Shannon. We are complete because of Jesus Christ alone. Now, I've certainly been challenged in unique ways. I think I've grown as an individual because of my marriage. But my completeness comes in Jesus Christ. Our completeness comes in Jesus Christ, in Jesus alone. And that is the reason for singleness, is that it doesn't need to be married. You don't need to be married to be seen as complete. So not only completeness, but there's also this understanding in the text that Jesus says one of the benefits of being single is single-minded devotion. That you have the ability to be single for the sake of the kingdom. In fact, uh, Brunner describes it this way when he's describing the text. Some people were born castrated, unable to marry. Others were castrated by their conquerors in war so that they were not attracted to the other sex. Skipping down. And still others were moved by the call of the kingdom to put sexual relations aside and so, in effect, to be eunuchs. See, the way that Jesus is teaching this, similar to when he talks in Matthew 5 about Uh, not lusting, and if you do, poking out your eye. This is a spiritualized understanding. This is not a literal thing. Uh, Origin, originally, if you understand church history, he originally interpreted it literally. Then he interpreted it spiritually later. So, a little side note. Always pass your interpretation through people (laughs) before you come to a full conclusion, right? So, he acted upon that. But Jesus, in this text, says... That the single life is a gift. The single life is a gift. It is not a command. It is not a higher calling, but it's a personal decision. And some of us have the ability to make the personal decision to say, I will, along with Paul and Jesus, choose undivided devotion. I will choose clarity and purpose. I will choose the ability to adapt and respond. I was talking with Rochelle earlier and just said, what is one of the benefits of being single? And she said very clearly, I have the ability to respond at a moment's notice. Let's assume that both Rochelle and I were called to go to some other country to begin to do ministry. Rochelle would be there instantaneously. She'd drop what she'd have, she'd move, she'd be on her way. I'd be like packing suitcases still. I'd be trying to get kids out of school and transferred to a different school system. I'd be figuring out how to transition our family there's, there's a sense in both texts, this Matthew one as well as Paul's in uh, 1 Corinthians, that, that there's additional things that are on my mind and on my heart besides just the kingdom of God. And so there's great freedom 
to live into that calling. So here are admonishments this morning for those of you who are single. And I'm not sure how to say this other than maybe sounding insensitive, but this is where we've come to the conclusion is that single people have to be okay with this reality. You have to believe the scriptures that your completeness is in him and him alone, not in the eventuality of finding a mate. And now, again, I don't want to minimize the desire that people have to find a mate. I think that's good. I think that that's natural. It's not all bad. But if you believe that finding a mate will complete you, if you believe that finding a mate, in finding a mate, your hurts, your pain, your anger, your frustration, your questions of God, why hasn't he responded to your prayers? If you believe that those will all be answered in your marriage or in finding a mate, it's not true. The only place that we can find completeness is in Christ. The reality is, is you have really one or two options. Either you allow the hurt, the confusion, the questions to slowly take you down, or you lean into your singleness. You lean into it. You study the scripture. You pray. You surround yourself with community. And you say, God, I trust you. I trust that your plans are good. I trust that your timing is good. I trust that I am complete in you. And so I will take advantage of this time. I'll take advantage of the time where I am single and I can pick up. I can adapt. I can work for your kingdom without some of the complexities that come with marriage and family. And what we're going to do is transition to this awkward space that we didn't know what to call other than the space between. So we covered single, we covered married, now we're going to cover this idea of the space between. That's a great point. You still have to choose. Even in the sense of you still have to choose whether you want single-minded devotion. Just because you're single doesn't mean you have single-minded devotion. You have to set aside and be be selfless. That's great. So in the space between this, uh, this, this dating thing, we need to understand first and foremost that dating is not biblical. There's not a di- biblical mandate for, for dating. It's a socially constructed thing. Now, however, biblical principles need to inform how we do date because we live in this culture and dating is a reality. So you can date, you can court, you can not label it because it gets all confusing. <laughs> you can kiss dating goodbye. You can do whatever you want. But the reality is is you have to allow, you have to accept biblical principles to inform this space between. So as uh, Kevin and I kind of went off script, so we're not teaching just directly out of the text, um, to come up with some teaching that would address this aspect of dating or being in relationship, all we could come up with were admonishments, all right? (laughs) So... So we, we, have, we have two admonishments for you, but, but here's why we're focused on admonishments, all right? First of all, there are many of you that are in relationship right now, either dating, engaged, or deep in a relationship that are actually handling the space between with class, dignity, and grace. And you recognize those people because they lead a balanced life, because they have both shared interests as well as their own individual interests. You recognize it. Because their friends have remained intact, even though they've begun to date. You recognize it because they have a healthy way of being together, right? Those are things that you can see in couples. And we applaud you if you're in that space. But we also know that some people are wrestling with, how do I really live into the relationship and live into it well? And so, for the rest of you, we came up with uh, Russ and Kevin's simple rules to the space between. 
And we have two rules for you, okay? Rule number one is what we call the Shrek principle. All right? <laughs> Here's what I mean. If he's an ogre when you're dating, he will be an ogre when you're married. Okay? <laughs> if he's an ogre when you're dating, he'll be an ogre when you're married. Here's what I mean by that. The, if the person you're dating is not who they're supposed to be, getting married does not fix the problem. Getting married does not fix the problem. I would argue that marriage doesn't fix the problem, it only amplifies it. So here's what I mean. If he is not or she is not serving you now, they will serve you less when you're married. If he or she is not respecting you now, honoring you now, they will respect and honor you less. If there's no proper affection in your relationship now it will be even less when you're married if they're annoying you now <laughs> they will annoy you even more then okay so if you hope that marrying a shrek suddenly turns him into prince charming or marrying a witch certainly suddenly turns her into like uh, this beautiful princess okay it doesn't happen. Marriage doesn't fix the problem. It only amplifies it. Here's our second admonishment. Back rubs in the front room become front rubs in the back room. <laughs> now this is just good wisdom right here. <laughs> now here, here's the deal. This is obviously irreverent and, and it's <laughs> meant as a joke, but it's actually true. We have to guard our sexuality. As dating couples, we have to guard our sexuality. Now, I've seen the destruction of this in my life. Before I was a Christian, I had many unhealthy dating relationships. Relationships where I tried to push the envelope physically as far as I could. I was under the impression that as long as you didn't have sex, as long as you didn't sleep with whoever you were dating, then everything else is kind of on the table but just save sex for marriage. That led me to an incredible amount of hurt and pain. It led me to objectify women. It added insecurity to my marriage relationship. Because you know that you'll run across one of those ex-girlfriends again in the grocery store 10 years later when you're with your wife and your kids. And then you have to have the debriefing conversation and you feel all that guilt come back upon you. So we have to guard our sexuality. And, and, and one of the things that I did not do well in this was I didn't date in community. Now, again, I wasn't a Christian. I didn't know all this stuff, but I try to do it individually. I think as people in the church, as dating couples in the church, we have to date in community. We have to date in a way that other people are informing our dating relationships. Now, it's hard for us to talk about this segment because we're actually talking into a hyper-sexualized society. I mean, we would agree that the pendulum for sex in our society has swung completely to one side. There's constant bombardment with the idea of sexuality, sex, expressing yourself primarily through the avenue of sex. And it's, it, becomes, um, it becomes something that continues to grow and grow in our society such that the first just typical internet exposure for someone to pornography is the average age is 11. The, the first interaction with pornography online is age 11. 
Uh, not only that, I mean, I, I see it just in conversations that I have with kids. I, I was in Indiana, this was about a year or two ago, and I was hanging out uh, with this group of third, three and four-year-olds, okay? Three and four-year-olds are in this little classroom. I'm hanging out. This, uh, this little boy and girl come up. We start talking. And, hey, how are you doing? How was your weekend? What did you do? And the little girl says, oh, last night we watched a movie. I go, oh, that's great. What did you watch? She said, oh, we watched Hot Girls with my dad. And I said, what? And the little boy, I'm not kidding you, goes like this. You're not supposed to say that, right? These are three and four-year-olds. Three and four-year-olds who are having that kind of conversation. Or my daughter, this was a couple years ago. She's in sixth grade now. About two years ago, we're sitting around the table. And uh, we're just at the table. We always debrief the day. How was it? What did you learn? What's new? How's school? What are conversations you entered into? All those kinds of things. And and we're sitting there, I've got my boys, I think one is uh, eight, the other six at the time. And, uh, and she just said, oh yeah, it was, it was, we had this conversation at, on the playground, and she said, we found out that, you know, Susie and Bobby. And I go, what, what was that? And she goes, yeah, like Susie and Bobby. And just in case you're wondering, this, generations ago, still means this today, okay? <laughs> and so, so I go, let's like not talk about this at dinner, this would be great to talk about, but let's talk about it later. And so her and I entered into a conversation where we're beginning to talk through what that means. The thing is, she completely knows what it means. We've had all these conversations on it already, but these are conversations that are happening in our hyper-sexualized society. So what you have to understand is, for us to, to speak into this, we almost have to swing the pendulum quite a bit the opposite direction. But let me start by saying this. It is very clear in Scripture unequivocally clear that there is to be no sex before marriage, plain and simple, all right? The biblical calling for all of us is no sex before marriage, no sex outside of marriage. The calling that I have on me is to have no sexual relations with anyone other than my wife. If you are single, the calling you have is no sexual relations with anyone other than the one that will be your wife when you become married, okay? That is very clear in scriptures. But I want to take a different angle because I think it's important for us to talk at it from another perspective. Just really quick, I want to highlight two things. The first one is this. There's a passage in Song of Solomon, and there's a little line that says, don't awaken love until it pleases. It means this, don't stir up love until it's ready. Don't stir up love until it's ready. See, if you frame your relationship around intimacy rather than friendship, you're going to be hating it years from now. If you frame your relationship around intimacy, it quickly falls apart. If it's just about the physical, if it's just about the sex, if it's just about those feelings, it will suddenly falter. But if you frame your relationship around friendship, around honor and respect, about establishing a strong, committed relationship first, you have a marriage that could go, you have a relationship that can go the distance. Every married couple that I look at and I go, man, 20 years from now I want to be like them. 10 years from now I want to be like them. Every single one of those marriages have been founded on this committed, loyal friendship where it's their best friend. It's someone that they say, I would rather spend time with you than with anyone else. When we frame it on that, it can last. When we frame it 
on just the feelings, the touch, the physical nature, it won't last. The second way to kind of look at this is to look at it from the perspective of honor. If I could ensure that my boys, my three young boys, were to live out one thing in their potential dating relationships, it would be this idea of honor. Treating the girls that they could potentially date with honor. Someone who treats others with honor places values on the other for who they are, not for what they can bring, not for what they can give. They treat them with dignity, with respect and care, and they seek to serve the other without expectation of return. If I could ensure my boys could do that, I'm pretty confident we wouldn't have issues. Another thing that honor does is that it leads to humility. And humility recognizes that the person you are dating could, in fact, not be the person that you marry. The person you are dating now may not be the one that you marry. And so you honor that person in the way that they may not be your spouse. And so you save the things for marriage for the marriage relationship. Therefore, what is meant for marriage is held on to until marriage is the actual reality. Not just because you're dating somebody and you think you might be married, but honor recognizes that. Honor leads to that humility to say, I don't know, and so I'm going to hold on to this. I'm going to guard this stuff until I actually am married. If our dating relationships could begin and end with honor, then I'm pretty confident our entire community would be healthier. The pain, the hurt, the awkwardness associated with unhealthy relationships would no longer be issues within our broader community because people, <coughs> excuse me, because people would honor one another. If, uh, if you've in any way struggled with that in the past, if you've already entered into a relationship, you've been physical, it, it's not too late to begin again, right? It's not too late to understand that grace is present to begin to set aside that physical relationship and move back to a place where you say, we want this founded and grounded on Christ and on friendship and on a, a, a relationship that's healthy. And obviously, if, if you've moved to that place, you have to, again, we bring it up again, accountability and community. You have to do this together. And so we would say, uh, if you don't have an accountability partner, talk with us. Help us to find one. Get into your group. Begin to hash these things out. I don't think we can enter into a relationship and move through it successfully without doing it with others. Okay? Now, to wrap up our time this morning, we're going to do a couple quick things. The first one is this. I'm going to uh, show you a little video. In this video, uh, we want you to direct your attention to it. It'll be about three minutes long. And what we're asking you to do as you watch it is to look at some of the themes that are brought up in the video. This is a, uh, a video where a guy does spoken word and communicates, I think, some important messages that wrap up our time. And uh, the last thing we want you to focus on when you go through that is really the ending that he gives, where he frames everything that we've been discussing around this idea of whole relationships founded in Christ. Disney movies and chick flicks. They've put us in a weird position. They've distorted our reality because we forget they're actually fiction. Because in marriage, we either get better or bitter, either joy or remorses. What we're doing isn't working. Just look at the rate of divorces. So how's your marriage? I mean, come on, let's be honest. Marriage seems to sound more like a prison than the paradise they were promised. 
We thought marriage is supposed to fulfill us and make us happy, not lonely. But the truth is God's first priority is making you holy. You say, no one told me. It feels so odd that dating feels like a vacation while marriage feels like a job. Yet the secret of joy, if we just pull back the facade, is realizing most problems arise when we elevate our spouse to God. Without knowing it, we fulfilled Romans 1, 25. By our actions, exchange the truth about God for a lie. We've exchanged God for lesser created things. It's like a husband trading his wife for a 2D image on a screen. Hoping it'll set us free just to find on the fumes we're choking. Because if your marriage rests on anything but Jesus, it's resting in something broken. Yet guys continually sacrifice their marriage on the altar of sex and lust. I mean, if our dollars were honest, they'd stay in pleasure, we trust. So men, grow up, put down the controller. How about you lead her with grace instead of trying to control her? Now, I've never been married, but I'm a product of one that was non-existent. So don't tell me I don't understand the pain. Don't tell me I don't get it. So for the singles, become friends first before you ever become lovers. Pursue Jesus as your foundation before you get under the covers. Because believe me, a strong friendship before marriage will make a good marriage after. Marriage isn't just sex. It's conversation and laughter. I mean, some spouses barely even like each other, and the marriage seems like a dead end. You might share a checkbook and a house, but are you actually friends? I mean, if marriage isn't a commitment, then what's the point of the vows we say? Till death do us part, really means until the feelings go away. Like, I'll stay with him, but only until it gets tough and my love shifts. But I say, imagine if a parent took that perspective with their kids. Like, can't you see it? The minute the kid spills something on the floor, the mom's saying, forget it. I don't even love you anymore. No, it's just like marriage. To last, you need the strength from above. Because it's not the love that sustains the promise, it's the promise that sustains the love. I mean, think about it. Out of anyone who's actually had the right to leave, God had every reason in the world that he still came for you and me. And on the cross, he paid it all, took our shame and set us free. When he could have called down legions of angels, he chose to stay on that tree. From the cross, he looks you in the eye and says, I'm taking this for my bride. When you trust in me, you no longer have to hide. Because of me, it is finished. You've been made new. You're spotless, you're blameless. There's no sin in you. Because his death was a proposal. He wanted you no matter the cost. Where some guys propose on a knee, Jesus proposed on a cross. So read Ephesians 5, whether husband or wife. Wife, honor your husband. Husbands, give up your life. Just like Jesus gave himself up for his bride, the church. So men lead by serving, by putting her first. So die to self, put your flesh on a life sentence. Because you don't fall out of love as much as you fall out of repentance. How powerful is that, huh? We're going to end this morning a little bit differently. I'm going to invite you guys to stand with me. We know that we are beyond our time, and so if you need to jam, totally understand. But here's how we're going to end this morning. We believe this is incredibly important stuff. That relationships are weighty. And so we want to give some time some space to that this morning. We want to take communion. It's going to be a little bit different. There's going to be no music up here. There's going to be no background music. We want to just create some space for people to pray with one another, for people to just be present, for people to go and take communion as couples, as dating couples, as married couples, as singles, as small groups, however you want to. But go take of the cup, take of the bread in remembrance of what Christ has done for us. Speak the gospel to each other this morning.